Thank you for joining the Capital Church Podcast. We believe that Jesus is for you and that through these expressions of our community, you will find hope, healing, and belonging. To learn more, join us live every week online and visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Can you thank the worship team, the musicians? Good job. Church wouldn't be the same without you. Wow, praise God. Well, Zeke, are you here? You won, right? Okay. You're in semifinals now, right? So Zeke's the quarterback of Meridian High School. They won Friday night, and they're going to the semifinals this Friday night. Stand up, Zeke. This is the guy you're going to pray for this week, okay? Right there. Rich Henley. We've had a member of our church gone for almost, has it been a year? It's been a year? Rich was, he's, uh, he works in the military and all those different things. He's, he's been out at Gowan Field and different places, but he was assigned overseas last year. He got home this week, Friday. Rich, would you stand up? Would you welcome Rich home? He's one of my favorite people, and I've missed him. Glad you're home, Rich. Well, how many of you have voted? Okay, put your hands down. How many are going to vote? Okay. Now, remember this. The key for voting now is life. Number one. Number one, I'm not going to vote. I'll just be honest with you, I'm not going to vote for a child sacrificer. I can't, I can't say any nicer. Okay? So, make sure you vote for life and uh, get out there and, and do a good job with that. Vote. Tonight, we're going to have prayer here at the church, 6 o'clock, and we're going to pray for our nation. If you want to know who to vote for, you can come. I can kind of tell you. Okay? Would you bow your head? Let's pray. Father, we're believing for a divine impartation this morning. We're believing you're going to speak to us, help us. You're going to nurture our hearts. You're going to open our minds, open our hearts to the will of God. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I have four parts to my message today. Uh, I'm doing this in place of Chris. Uh, he wanted me to come and do this one. So I'm doing this for him today. And uh, it's a dear, near and dear to my heart. We've been talking about the distinctives of the early church. We talked about the poor and needy. We've talked about uh, all the different aspects of the, of the early church. My, my job today is to talk about the protection and preservation of the seed and the children. I like that topic. So... I'm going to do uh, a part here. I'm going to kind of give background history, and then we're going to launch into some solutions and what we need to do. I'm going to end with a very special thing. You're going to really enjoy this. On the battlefield of ideas, 
a war is raging to capture the current and future generations of children. Why is that? Because whoever captures the kids owns the future. So the question is, am I going to join the battle to protect the children from untruth and injustice? Let me make one thing very clear. Today, we're talking about matters of public policy, but we're also talking about the tactics and goals of activist leaders of the alternative lifestyle agenda. We're in a war. A war that has been underway since actually the sexual revolution in the 1960s. This war intensified greatly in 1988 in Warrenton, Virginia, when 175 activists, leaders of the alternative lifestyle agenda, convened a war conference. Their words, not mine. The subsequent fruit of the conference was a long-range and comprehensive plan to pressure and use the media to help them progress toward the creation of a new core culture value. Namely, alternative lifestyle practices to make it normal and good. Their goal was this. Three words. Desensitize, jam, and convert. Desensitization is described as inundating the public in a continuous flood of gay-related or alternative-related advertising presented in the least offensive fashion possible. Jamming is a psychological terrorism meant to silence expression of or even support for dissenting opinion. Have you noticed that lately? No dissenting opinion. Conversion means the conversion of the average America's emotions, mind, and will through a planned psychological attack in the form of propaganda fed to the nation via the media. The media has replaced the church. In the very beginning in the American Revolution, the pastors were the media. They would get up in their pulpits and they would do election sermons. They would do battlefield sermons. They would do all these sermons indicating what was going on in their culture and they were very clear about what was happening. Today, the media has become the preachers. And how is that? Well, we all have these devices and they're preaching to us all the time. And if we're not careful, we will slowly, even quietly, even unknowingly be moved. Although we're all moved at times by these things, children are the most important prize. It is children who, who are most at risk of being captured. Children are exposed the most to the media's barrage of powerful, mind-mangling messages. Children are the most susceptible to being shaped and influenced by the media. The post-boomer generation was the first to be raised in a pervasive multimedia environment. The first. The stakes are huge. It's the dismantlement of the traditional family as the core institution of society, which then leads, and I could go on and on, which I can't, which leads to more crime and other social problems at a high cost. It isn't just better, more money and better policies. 
You know what the problem in America is? Lack of families and lack of fathers. If we get that turned around, you get everything else turned around. I'm sorry, I, I'm, I'm tempted to go someplace, but I can't. I got too much to say today. I wish I had a three-part series. I could really go into it here. But children, and remember, we've talked about we need to protect the seed. Children will suffer as they're forced to live in and affirm unnatural and confusing parenting arrangements that contradict what is written on their consciences. God wrote it on them. And if they can get that changed, then the children's hearts will harden. But there's actually a much bigger agenda. The opposition wants to separate children from Jesus, who is the living word. Separate them from the Bible, his written word, by making it seem unbelievable. If the Bible is unenlightened and untrustworthy regarding alternative lifestyles, how can it be trusted concerning anything else? The present battle squarely pits two sets of interests against one another. One is the best interest of children, who are indeed voiceless and powerless. And the other is the self-centered interest of an extremely small but politically powerful segment of our nation's adult citizens. This group seeks to wrest from the political system total endorsement and affirmation of their personal behavior patterns. There will be a winner and there will be a loser. If children are the losers, it will be a grave injustice to them. Traditionally, our laws relating to child custody have always been given priority to the best interest of children over, to the, interest of, over the interests of adults. The activists would have us turn these priorities upside down when you cut through all the positioning orchestrated by the activists, their claim amounts to no more than this. Freedom means you must give me what I want because I want it, regardless of its impact. And if you don't, you are a moralistic, hate-filled, backwards, ignorant bigot, especially if you believe in the authority of God's word. But let's look at Jesus' priorities. I always like to look at Jesus' priorities. He reserved a special place in his heart for children. The disciples didn't want people to bother Jesus by bringing little children to meet him. He had a different view. Let, in Matthew 19, 14, it says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And in this setting, he demonstrated giving priority to the needs of the children over the agenda of adults. Remember that. In another setting, Jesus displayed how deeply he cared about protecting children. Now listen to this one. This will get to you. Luke 17, 1 through 2. Now, I don't know that we view misleading and mistreating children as seriously as Jesus did. He said this, things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. It's pretty heavy duty. I think I'd have the fear of the Lord. 
We must remember right now, though, that we're in a spiritual war. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, it says, Finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. You're not fighting all those people out there that are displaying stupid things. You're, they're, they're not your uh, target. But we are wrestling against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. Amen. That makes sense? Yes. So, you don't get mad at the individual. You start praying and delivering our children from the evil spirits. I believe we've been doing that on, on, on Wednesday nights. For five weeks, we've been praying against this. We've been coming, we've been declaring, we've been uh, uh, dissecting the enemy over every state. We've, we have gone and prayed over every state in the nation. Wow. We're going to continue that tonight, 6 o'clock. If you want to be a part of that, come. Every citizen will be involved in the outcome of this critical battle that I'm talking about. None can escape. You'll either support the alternative lifestyle group, or you will stand for truth and justice for children, or you will ignore the situation and let others decide the outcome. But consider these words. If you are neutral in, in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. But if you, stand, if you choose to stand for children and justice for children, sometimes important battles take years. We have to understand that. Will, William Wilberforce, read his, his biography, incredible man of God, who actually fought in England against uh, uh, the slave trade in the British Empire. It took him 20 consecutive years of effort in the British Parliament to achieve the elimination of the slave trade. On the other hand, God can move instantly. You can, you can take a stand. Think about the three Hebrew children. This is interesting. Three Hebrew children, they're teenagers. They're teenagers. And they're there before King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar announces that they must bow. When the music starts, and this, this, is, a, this is a great message in and of itself. I wish I could just preach this today. About how the culture demands you do certain things. And if you don't, what happens? Well, this is interesting. They, they were put, you know the story, so I don't have to tell you, but they were thrown into a fiery furnace. The same day they were for, thrown in the fiery furnace, they were brought out because King Nebuchadnezzar saw that it didn't affect them. In fact, the Son of God was in there with him. And I don't know how he knew it was the Son of God, but he says, that's the Son of God. He brought him out, and then he demanded that all of Babylon worship the God that the three Hebrew children worship. That's a change of events. Yeah. Took one day. Just a few hours. It might be a few years. It might be a few hours. But God always wins. Yeah. So be encouraged. Taking a, a stand can result in good opportunities, good laws, good leaders to serve in the kingdom. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Let's protect our children. Oh, I love our children. Sometimes I could forget about you guys. Just bring the children. I mean, I just... 
Really, I, when I see you, I start hugging the kids first. Because they're the most important. They're the most impressionable. And they have to see and know the love of God. Part two. Still with me? So there's a scripture. I mention it quite often. Scripture in the Bible, Hebrews eleven seven. It says, by faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. We know this scripture. Noah comes along, he prepares an ark. He built an ark. Now, I'm going to apply this to us. We've got to start preparing. We've got to build an ark. Don't let your children just grow up. Raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you abdicate this responsibility... They will be tutored by the things of the world and you will be shocked at what happens. He prepared an ark, he built an ark, and he saved his family. He saved his family. My family is important to me. Your family is important to you. And I want them saved in every way and the same way with, that Noah did. His children were saved because he got them in the ark. Now remember this which was the place of God's provision and protection. You can't just be right in your thinking. You have to be right in your positioning. I don't have time to go into all that. Wow. There's a whole message I preached just on that. Interestingly, the word household is the word oikos in the Greek. This word came to mean the small social unit of the family. God wants us to build an ark, which is a house. The Old Testament model for the New Testament church is the ark. The ark was the, New, the Old Testament sign of the church. And so if you go into the, Old, the New Testament, God begins to kind of paint a picture of building a house that we all can live, here, live in, which is a natural house and a spiritual house. Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. Or another way of saying it, it is that God must build a house if it is to endure. 2 Samuel 7.11, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. When Connie and I came here almost 40 years ago, do you know what we came to do? We came to build a house. A spiritual house, yes. We've actually built a couple natural houses, but we came most emphatically to build a spiritual house. The last days, as we see in the, in the life of Noah, the last days will be times of great pressure and shaking. Have you ever seen a time where there's been more shaking than today? These days will be similar to the days of Noah, not just in, in what is happening in the, nat, in, the, in the negative, but also in the positive. These days will be characterized by tremendous deception. It's out there. The day of the Lord is referred to by Joel as the great and terrible day of the Lord. How can it be great and terrible at the same time? The Bible says it is. It is also referred to as a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. But then he also says it's a day that is like the morning spread upon the mountains. So it's really good and it's really bad. And what will determine the, the, the salvation, protection, and preservation of all of us is the building of the house, and we're in it. The reason why Noah built the ark was to save his family. When the floods come in the days ahead, 
They've already started. The rains are falling. The difference is going to be the house. For the Bible says in Matthew 24, 37, but as the, as, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the coming of the Son of Man. So, our day is going to be characterized by the days of Noah. So we better get building. We better get building. We better make sure we got a house. And we need to understand the protection and preservation of the children. Noah saved his family because he listened to the voice of God and built the ark. We need to listen to the voice of God and build the house. Isaiah 54, 13, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Psalm 127, 3, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Chris and Kelly are really happy. <laughs> so are we. Matthew 19, 14, but Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for as such is the kingdom of heaven. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Psalm 144, 12, that our, sins may be, our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. Wow, what a picture. So you have to understand, there's an atmosphere in this, in this ark. This is an ark here. We started building this ark 40 years ago. No, it took 120 years. We've, we've only been at it about a third of the time. This ark is, is right here. And there's an atmosphere in every ark, every church. As we place our children in the covering of the ark, we allow them to be in a certain atmosphere. This, this ark has an atmosphere of faith, an atmosphere of prayer, an atmosphere of the Holy Spirit, an atmosphere of protection and provision. Do you, know the, do you know why I walk the halls? Do you know why I stand at the door? Yeah, I like to see you, talk to you, etc. Do you know what I am also doing? I'm looking for wolves. If you're a wolf here, you're in trouble. I'll just tell you. Oh, I've had my time with them. This is also a church and arc of the atmosphere of love. Great love. An, an atmosphere of extended family. We have extended family here. It's like we're family. An atmosphere of heroes. We have heroes in the house. Every generation looks up to the other generation because they have done something great. It's an atmosphere of a future and a hope. You see, as we have our children in the church... We allow them to be mentored and cared for by the entire church body. Have you ever noticed babies go from one person to another? I don't know if that's your baby or not. Because we're all holding them. Can I tell you that's good? That is. It's good. Because what it does, it allows us, because by ourselves we cannot do justice to child rearing. It takes, let me say it this way, in Pastor Ken's words instead of a political person several years ago. It takes a covenant church to raise a child. But, but as we have all ages within the church community, it's like having a large family to help bring children up in the ways of God. It is. It's like you have 
cousins and aunts and uncles, and we're all together raising our children. Our weaknesses are then covered by other strengths. Boy, I don't know if you're catching what I'm saying today. This is so good. And then what happens is we have righteous spirit-led children that then bring restoration. Isaiah 61, 4 says, and they shall rebuild the, this is talking about the children. They shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. When a church full of new generation young people arise, there's going to be an incredible restoration and revival. Part three. Still with me? As parents, our role for our children is this. Listen to me carefully. It's to lift their eyes and raise their reach. Lift their eyes and raise their reach. We're to raise them up to go farther and higher than we have gone. We must treat them more like a gift than a burden. The difference between gifts and burdens is the joy with which we carry them. What you are carrying is meant to bless you, not burden you. The world says a chi a ch children are a burden. The church says children are a gift from God. You see, if you think the way that God thinks, then you will not mind the weight of your journey. Children do add weight. God wants to bring generations together to accomplish the task of reaching the world. Personal story. So Connie and I, we did not ask or force our children to be involved in our vocation of ministry in the church. In fact, we tried to steer them away, making sure that it was God, not us. We gave them every opportunity to do something else, but they chose it. They, were, they then began to work with their parents, and that isn't always the easiest thing, not for them or us, but something happens as we build on what we have together. Now, benefits come to us in ways we would never have comprehended. I actually started doing this in my father's ministry. I served him in his work. Working with parents and family can be the most rewarding thing a family does. Not just ministry, any vocation, any gift calling. It's a rewarding thing. If you read the stories of the Bible, in every Jewish family, the children actually began to move and work in their father's vocation. Jesus became a carpenter. And through this simple process of losing myself, because working with parents and family can actually be a, a rewarding thing, I have actually found, by doing this, a life beyond my dreams. First comes the commitment to someone else's ministry. You're working for them. But after we are faithful with that, God always opens other doors we have no idea are even there. It's the power of combined destiny. We do that in the church. Together, we will see the destiny of God for this house. My children are now experiencing the power of generations before them who love God and ministered for God. Both sides of our family, four to six generations of preachers. They are... But here's the thing. They are coming into their own destiny because they labored in another man's field. So we have purpose and destiny. We all do. There's a, there's a little scripture. This is interesting. In Genesis 18, 19. You still with me? Yes. Genesis 18, 19. It says, For I have known him in order, speaking of Abraham, 
For I've known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. Interesting scripture. It's tucked away. It's tucked away in a corner of the Bible just before the more spectacular story of God's judgment over Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just stuck in there. And if you read the rest of the chapter of, it's just, there's this big explosion of things with Sodom and Gomorrah. But this little scripture says, God chose Abraham because he knew how to train his children. That's what this verse is saying. Now, interestingly enough, God actually called Abraham's father, Terah, to do what Abraham had done. We should have been the children of Terah, not the children of Abraham. Maybe you don't know that, scripturally. But Terah stopped. The Bible said he stopped and didn't fulfill the call of God. Abraham listened, said, I'll go where you want me to go. And this little, little scripture, that God blessed him and led him because he knew he would train up his children right. Here we see that success with your family involves more than just a conveyance of title and authority from father to son and daughter. Training is more than just good training and education in the things of God. That's a good place to start, but it isn't just that. The fulfillment of God's purposes in our families and churches demands nothing less than the successful impartation of anointing and passion for God's presence and principles from one generation to another. They have to experience God. They can't just go on my stories. They have to go on their experiences. Let me, let me give an example. When I was young, when my children were young and I was younger, I used to put them on my shoulders and play with them there. My shoulders were reserved for my own kids. My shoulders to them represented a place of total acceptance, complete security, they always loved getting up on my shoulders because I'd sometimes gallop. I'd do all kinds. Sometimes I'd pretend to run into things and run around as if I was an airplane. You know, they loved it. And guess what? They never asked to get down. They always said, Daddy, more. Here's the principle. The loftiness of their position changed their perspective of their surroundings. In their mind, they could see for miles. I, I see this out in the foyer. Parents with their children on their shoulders. They always enjoyed having to duck under doors. Every problem that looked so large was suddenly reduced to nothing the moment I lifted them up to my shoulders. In just one moment, I could scoop my children up from the place that they were being tripped, where they were being tripped over and, and ignored to a lofty place of safety and security. This way I could restore my children's confidence, calm their fears, and actually transform the way they viewed the world. Now, you may not have had that experience with your own natural dad, but your heavenly father said that he would be a father to the fatherless. In fact, the scriptural principle of adoption always allows you even to adopt childhood stories of others as your own. Allow the scenes described in the Bible to form a powerful picture and reveal the spiritual significance of what it means to ride on the Heavenly Father's shoulders. If you don't do this, it, it may be difficult to harness the power and, and personally become a platform to help your descendants ascend to their God-ordained destiny. 
In the spiritual realm, your loving lift, when you lift them, literally empowers your children to start in life as spiritual millionaires. It gives them a leg up on the world with a real advantage and opportunity to make a greater difference in the world. You and I have an opportunity and an obligation to teach our children and those who we have adopted. Basically, I've adopted you all. So that it is, it's, it's possible to turn the tide of destiny even with one life. Isaiah 49.2 says, and he, and he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In his quiver he has hidden me. You and your children are polished or select arrows in the quiver of God. He fully intends to shoot you out into the future toward the mark of your divine destiny and purpose. Polishing perfects, straightens, and removes splinters. Now, I want to tell you, it's in the church where you get polished. This is what happens. In the church, you will find people you don't really like. They'll sit down right beside you. And you'll find yourself, oh, maybe I'll go to another church. Oh, they're there too. <laughs> you see, God is polishing you. Now, I have a whole message on that, which I can't do today either. But you're being polished, straightened, removing splinters in you. Without it, destiny will be aborted. And the launching pad of Daddy's shoulders is only achieved after the lifting parent reaches down. To launch, you have to lift. To lift, you have to exert. Too many of us parents want someone else to polish and perfect our little arrows. So we send them to somebody else. We send them to school. We don't cover them. We don't... I get the privilege of teaching my, the big three. Three of my grandchildren every, every week. I, I'm homeschooling them. That's a privilege. Wow. I don't know for how much longer, though. But what a privilege, praying for them, teaching them, imparting to them. They didn't know Papa knew so much. Arrows must be aimed. So prepare your children to receive a double portion of God's best because of your faithfulness and your diligence. Make sure you invest your life to further the kingdom through the legacy you leave to your descendants. Set your heart and soul to help your children, your grandchildren, go further and do more for God than you have ever dreamed. It's happening for me. Polish them, lift them, aim them, shoot them. Not literally. So, when you were born into the world, much of what you came to understand about God and his creation resulted from observing the people around you. We all learn how to relate to others by observing how our parents and other adults around us relate to one another. We also learn how to handle adversity or cave in under pressure by observing how the adults in our lives handle the challenges that came their way. Our knowledge of God is literally a composite of the things we have observed and filtered through the lives of others around us. We can never underestimate 
The power of praying grandmothers. Faithful, God-fearing uncles and aunts, grandfathers, cousins who model integrity in business, personal relationships, and their dealings with our children. See, we're just a bunch. This is a family. Uncles and aunts and cousins and grandfathers and fathers and mothers. Only God knows the full impact that our lives make on others. But we can be sure he notices it seemed to be one of Jesus' chief concerns. Matthew 18, 5 and 6. I already read this. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depths of the sea. In most cases, our parents become our first and most important filters through whom we see the world and its creator. Every search for true identity begins and ends with God. If you're searching for true identity, God is the only forefather you really need to know. First, he created a plan, and then he made you specifically to fulfill that purpose. So good. Oh, this is so good. So good. If there's so many gems in this message today, if you leave here not having been fed, shame on you. Right. See, God knew you before you were born. And he set you apart before he formed you in your mother's womb. You were God's idea, so accept it. And once you know, once you know the heart of your creator, you will begin to know his purpose for your creation. And as parents and mentors, we have a responsibility to teach our children about the things of God. It's mostly caught, not just taught. They watch. Oh, do they watch. Here's a principle. This may be the most important thing I say today. You don't come from your parents. You come through your parents. See, I come from God through my parents. God is my first father. That's why the blood of Jesus is so powerful. You actually have his DNA when you're saved. Oh, and there's a whole other message. Wow. Now we could be here all day. So as the second parent, we're to pass on to our children the things that God would be pleased with. All too often we try to copy what we have in the form of a program or a formula and pass it on to our children. I have a lot of people, what's your formula? What's your secret for raising children? I don't know. <laughs> Bring them to the house of God and pray for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of what we did. And ask for grace. Yeah. Isn't it really better to show them how to grow fruit and cultivate a real relationship with God for themselves? Our chief role as parents is to guide our children gently and encourage them strongly. Did you hear that? Guide them gently, encourage them strongly. Psalms 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. You need to teach your children to taste and trust. Whew, that's so good. Once children, disciples, or students taste the fruit of God's love and abiding presence, they will no longer be content with mere technical descriptions. Let me show you something. Caleb. I want to show you the difference between teaching them, instructing them, and actually letting them experience things. Now, here's a picture of, a, of an apple. Okay, I could teach you a half an hour on an apple, how it grows, the seed that comes, the tree that it comes on, and what happens in an apple's life. 
and how an apple can be anywhere from apple juice, apple cider, you know, apple sauce. Not apple pies, though. I don't like apple pies. But I could teach you that. Caleb, that's an apple right there, buddy. Yeah, that's pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, it's good to know that. But I tell you, it all changes when I give it to him and he tastes it. Oh, taste and see. What's that apple like? I think it tastes better than paper. It's sweet, it's juicy, it's crisp. A little tart. Yeah. Um, It's refreshing. Wow. He tasted to see. Taste of the Lord. And then trust. Thanks, Caleb. Here you go. I did that in honor of Michael. I don't even see Michael here today. Okay. Can I say it this way? Real fruit speaks for itself. It doesn't need an interpretation or explanation. Kate, ate it. You can eat the rest of it if you want while I'm I'm speaking. But what it is, it's an introduction. Let's begin to introduce our children to God. Introduce. Now let me tell you the story as I close. There's a story in the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel. The story is of Hannah who couldn't have children. And she went to the house of the Lord one day and she cried out to God. The priest thought she was drunk. He came to her, he rebuked her, but then she told him, no, I'm not drunk. I'm just, I just, I, I, I'm embittered because I don't have children. So he blessed her. He sent her away. It basically prophesied her that she would come back with a child. A few years later, she comes back and she gives that child as Samuel to the house of God. Interesting story. There's a lot of intricacies here. I'm going to tell a little bit about it. So when Eli, who was a high priest who came to her, he was a high priest and his, and his sons, they failed to actually minister to God properly. So what the Lord had to do, the Lord went outside the established pattern of lineage in Israel in leadership to install Samuel in their place. Samuel was birthed into leadership solely through the Godward passion and sacrificial pain of one desperate woman, Hannah. God is still doing it today. He's still calling many who do not come from a long line of preachers or or spiritual people or ministers or successful businessmen or doctors. Many leaders today were adopted by spiritual fathers who lent them their own shoulders to help launch them into their destiny and spiritual inheritance. Every believer needs to be mentored in some way in the things of God. Before you can stand on daddy's shoulders or the shoulders of an adopted Eli, you may have to be birthed out of a mother's prayers and nursed in her lap. I find this story fascinating. Why didn't God just introduce himself to Samuel first, the first time that he called him? If you remember the story, Samuel's sleeping in his bedroom and he hears a voice. And he goes to Eli, who called me? And he sent him back. He comes back a second time. Voice called again, who called me? And Eli finally gets it. So that must be God. Go back and say, you know, when he calls again, here am I. Speak. And so he goes back. I couldn't ever understand, though, all this Eli thing here. Why didn't God just introduce himself to, to Samuel? Maybe it was because God wanted to include Eli in the process of introduction. God chose to use Eli through all of his faults and failures. 
I'm telling you, we all have faults and failures. As Samuel's father figured to affirm what the boy suspected, that it was God. It was just as important for Eli to know that God was talking to Samuel as it was for Samuel to hear God for himself. Yet God also eliminated the contaminated middlemen using a simple but profound method. This is what happened. God speaks to Samuel and tells him he, he's getting rid of Eli's generation. I mean, that was a pretty hard thing. But Eli knew God was speaking to him, and Eli received it. Wow. He used Eli's confirmation and instruction to initiate an informal introduction and from then on, Samuel heard and responded to God without any help from Eli. And Samuel went on to become one of the greatest prophets in Israel. But it all began with an introduction. Who are you introducing to the voice of God? Are you training your children to hear God and taste God? Can you mentor someone to discern the master's voice? The next generation might be waiting on your Samuel. God is searching for passionate Hannahs and Abrahams. He wants to raise up these, these mighty Samuels and Isaacs to move in leadership through divine promotion, but it's gonna take an introduction. Are we ready to introduce? I want you to watch this video. This is part four. Watch the video that you're about to see was in Alaska doing a lawsuit. We're way out in the Aleutian Islands, getting ready to leave and go back to Anchorage and then home. And I had a ticket in my pocket to get on an airplane. A pastor came up and he said, listen, I can save you money. I said, how's that? He said, I flew a small airplane up here and I fly a small airplane and I can take you in my little airplane and you can save your ticket. And this did not sound, I said, gee, thank you so very, very much. But I've got this ticket. We'll just make our way on home, me and this other lawyer with me. He said, no, 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 you got to do it. You got to do it. And against every better judgment I had, I said, okay. Well, we went out to the airport, took us by his little plane, and I looked at it. And I thought, well, one good thing, it's shiny. Then he walked around it. We got in. He's on the left front. I'm on the right front. The other lawyer's sitting right behind me. And he started it up. And it started up just fine. Well, we taxied out. I said, should we pray? He said, yeah, that's a good idea. We normally don't. I said, well, this time we're gonna. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I prayed five, eight minutes. I prayed a long time. We went and got on the runway. He starts down the runway. The plane lifted off ever so gently and we start climbing. And it's wonderful. Not a problem in the world. We started climbing and we flew probably three, four minutes. And something happened that will never leave my mind. The pilot turned to me and he said, we're going in the clouds and I can't fly in clouds. They make me pass out. I said, clouds make you do what? <laughs> now it's been cloudy all day. And we go right up into the clouds and you can't see anything. And he looks at me and his eyes roll back in his head and he starts mumbling and he passes out, passed out cold. Now I grabbed him and I shook him and I said, come on, you got to wake up so I can kill you. Now we're in the clouds flying along with no pilot. 
And my friend in the back seat said, we're dead, aren't we? I said, there's a very good chance of that, yes. He said, what are we going to do? I said, I don't know. But there was a radio right there, and I handed him the microphone, and I said, start asking for help. So he's in the back seat reaching up, and he said, hello, hello. We didn't know any proper radio etiquette. All we were saying was hello. And somebody answered back, hello, hello. Don't you guys know proper radio etiquette? And I said, give it to me. I said, Tell we don't know nothing. Tell him we're in an airplane with a passed out pilot and we don't know how to fly this plane. The guy said, I'm a freighter flying out of Anchorage on the way to Tokyo. And he said, you're telling me you have nobody who can fly that plane with you? I said, tell him that's correct. Now you gotta understand, I am sweating bullets. He said, the first thing I'm gonna do is start circling so I don't lose you because I'll fly out of range of your radio and you won't have me anymore. And he said, I'm gonna get Anchorage emergency for you. And Anchorage Emergency will be the people that can maybe help you try to save your life. After about five minutes, Anchorage came on, said, we understand you have a passed out pilot. And those of you do not know how to fly that plane. We said, that's right. They said, well, the first thing we got to do is find you. And I'll never forget what this man at Anchorage said. He said, my job is to get you home safe. He said, that's my job. But he said, here's the deal. If you want me to get you home safe, you got to promise me you'll obey my voice. He said, you can't see me, but I can see you. And he said, if you're not going to obey my voice, you're going to die. When you can't see anything, you have no idea how disorientated you become. Finally, he said, okay, I found you. Now hear me clear. He said, you're four minutes from a mountain. He said, you're going to crash in that mountain and die. Follow my voice. I never said, I have to follow your voice. Is that reasonable? You see, I understood without his voice, I had nothing. And do you understand, without God's voice, you have nothing. Nothing. Finally, he got us turned. And he said, I'm freezing all the traffic in the area. He said, it's going to take me an hour and a half to get you to Anchorage. And there's a lot of weather between you and Anchorage. You're in for a rough ride. And he said, I want you to hear me. I don't want you to look at what's going on outside. I don't want you to pay attention to the storm just my voice he said if you start watching the storm you will die but i'll take you through it now because they cleared all the traffic several pilots those nighttime freighters those 747 started talking to us they said we're praying for you men you're gonna make it but listen to the voice that's the key. They said, trust the voice. You realize your head is full of voices and everybody in this world wants to talk to you and everybody wants to be the controlling voice. And God says, I want you to be a living sacrifice. I want you to put yourself on the altar and let my voice be your voice. Finally, we went through the worst of the weather, but there was still more. And then the voice came back and it said, now, I'm gonna line you up. He said, I'm gonna bring you in right down the runway. And at the foot of the runway are some lights and they're in the form of a cross. He said, don't you forget this. The cross is the way home. Finally, he's bringing us down. We still can't see anything. And all he kept saying is, stay with me. My sheep, the Bible says, hear my voice and they follow me. Finally, just a couple hundred feet off the ground, we saw the cross. I landed the plane. In fact, I landed it seven times. <laughs> Finally, it all came to a stop, and the minute we stopped, 
the pilot woke up. The voice said, thanks for listening. I watch them crash and burn all the time because they won't follow my voice. They don't understand I'm the one who can see them even when they can't see me. But they get the voices in their head and they kill themselves. They self-destruct. Thanks for listening to the voice. Then they put us in a motel room in about four in the morning. The knock at my door. And I opened the door and a man was standing there. He said, hello, David. I said, you're the voice. You're the one who got me home. He said, I am. Do you understand one day you're going to stand before him and say, you were the voice. You're the voice that brought me home. If you're not on that altar as a living sacrifice, your head's full of voices. And then we wonder why kids crash and burn. We wonder why marriages are shattered. And the Lord's saying, I'm the one who has the voice. All I can remember is that voice saying, stay with me. Stay with me. Don't listen to what's going on in your head and don't watch the storm. Stay with me. And I'll take you through. Tonight you have a God who has promised to take you through. A living sacrifice, holy. We need to introduce our children to the voice. He's the only one that can take him through. We can't even take him through. Only the voice. Would you bow your heads? Before we take communion today, I wanna, wanna ask this question. There's, <clears throat> I think there's some people here who probably are not in a position, you don't know the voice of God. You don't have that relationship, that intimate relationship with God where you can hear him and he can take you through. If you want that today, I want to pray for you. If you want that commitment to God where he can speak to you and he can guide your life, on the count of three, I want you to raise your hand. All I want to do is pray for you. One, two, three. Just lift your hand right now. Just lift your hand. Just keep it up. I see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen. 14, at least 15. You may put your hands down. Thank you, Jesus. Can everybody in the house pray this prayer with me? Those of you who raise your hands, you pray this prayer. We'll all pray it with you. Say it with me. Dear Jesus, I receive you in my heart today. I want to hear your voice. Clear my head. Don't let me look at the storms. Let me hear your voice. Cleanse me and make me one of your children. I believe in my heart and I confess with my mouth that you're my Lord and Savior. Make me a brand new person. I commit my life to you. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen. 27 people today have done that. 27 people. Now, I want the ushers to come, prepare. If you do not have communion, they will come to the front. They will go down the middle aisle, the side aisles. If you need it, raise your hand. They will give you communion. And the rest of you can stand. Okay, just lift your hand. We're going to take communion. If you already have your communion, go ahead and take that. Otherwise, lift your hand right now, and they will be glad to give that to you. While we're doing that, the worship team's going to sing this song. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to give towards this ministry, learn more about our church and events, or are in need of prayer, please visit capitalchurch.co.